I am Devin Weeders, and this is Real Talk the Podcast, where we talk all things inclusion and have a little bit of fun too. We are on Instagram at Real Talk Podcast Official. We are on Twitter at Devin Real Talk, D E V O N Real Talk, Facebook at Real Talk Podcast Official. And I hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Real Talk. Today on the show, we have Victoria. Um, she works at IBM. She has done a lot of consulting and things around diversity and inclusion, so she has a lot to share, especially about the time we're living in. And yeah, I really love this one, so enjoy the show. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Real Talk. My name is Devin Readers, and today we have Victoria Pelletier on with us. Is that how you say it? <laughs> Victoria Pelletier. Pelletier. Um, well, hi, Victoria. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Well, first, I guess we'll start it the way we always do. Uh, tell us about yourself. Okay, how much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> so I am. Um, so I'm a corporate executive. Uh, I, you know, I had visions of actually being a corporate lawyer, but I was working while I was in school, uh, you know, in a bank and got promoted. And I realized how much I kind of love the business world and being a leader. And so I now, you know, started working at a very early age, became an executive at age 24. Uh, so you know, I've been in a corporate executive now for. 20 years giving away my age uh but what i would describe as a you know an intrapreneur within a big global corporation but also i've had many many side hustles uh so i have an entrepreneurial spirit as well so you know and um either you know a natural bath and body works company i had a long time ago to you know acquiring a data and analytics company so lots and lots of like diverse um you know passions from a corporate perspective but I'm also uh, a wife, I'm a mom, uh, a fitness fanatic, and uh, I actually use the word multi-potentialite to describe me and just meaning I have like a, a ton of diverse interests of so health, wellness, fitness, uh, you know, being a bit of a, a foodie and enjoying wine. So, you know, that's the, uh, the, the macro view of how I describe me. Uh, you and my mom would get along well. She also enjoys wine. Um, um, so tell us how the executive at a bank kind of came about. Tell us that story and how you got that so young. Yeah. So I, when I was in university, I was working at a bank in a call center. Um, you know, those are very flexible hours so I could work around, um, my school schedule. And within six months, I actually got promoted, you know, to be a supervisor and, and before that, I'd actually had some, I, I worked in a shoe store and became a supervisor when I was 14. And like, so I'd had some experience, however, at that point. And I just, I, I did a number of things. One, you know, I'm a, I'm a voracious learner. I want to challenge myself. So I took all the different like training courses I could that the bank offered. You know, I was, I started by selling like credit card insurance like that was the entrance in and then became the leader. And I moved to the retail side of the bank and then to the, um, you know, lending and wealth side of the bank. And I had my mutual funds and security license. I had this great exposure went all across the bank and um, I took a chance. So I was planning on or I, taking a, um, during my summer break between my bachelor's degree and uh, going to law school, 
I moved, uh, the bank had asked me to come on an assignment for the summer to um, Toronto. So I'm originally from Canada, I uh, live in New York now, but uh, I grew up on Western Canada and they asked me to go to the big city of Toronto. And so I did and uh, was great, went back. And then shortly after they said, you know, we, we really loved working with you. We'd love it if you'd come like take a different role within the bank, a senior management role and come in and, um, and move to Toronto. And so I thought, oh, well, I guess I'll, Maybe I'll take a year off before going to law school and two things. One, if I, you know, really love Toronto, I'll just switch schools. Uh, and then secondly, if, if, you know, not, I'll just go back to, to Calgary and go Calgary, Western in Western Canada. And I ended up just loving it, loving it. So uh, two things I never did was go to law school, nor did I ever move back. I stayed, you know, I've been Toronto or New York ever since. And from there, I actually uh, moved around a number of times. I was with the bank for close to five and a half or six years. And I actually got a call uh, to um, leave the bank to move into an, an outsourcing company. So a company that ran call centers on behalf of other clients, other banks and different industries. And I remember um, one of my colleagues said to me, like, Victoria, why would you leave the bank? And she listed, you know, we had de decent hours. I was working in the investment side of the call centers at the time. So we had more standard hours, uh, great benefits, all these things. And I remember saying to her, like, Sharice, this is this is why I'm leaving. Right. It's kind of boring. You know, I want more of a challenge. And so I went and um, I was extremely nervous and uncomfortable. I was 24 years old and I took over as the chief operating officer and general manager for a 5,000 person privately held outsourcing company. You know, so in doing that, I had to trust that the skills I developed leading a multitude of different areas within the bank, um, inbound, outbound sales and customer service, et cetera, I could extrapolate that, you know, into that environment. So I took the leap of faith and did it at 24. Um, how was how was that doing that at such a young age? Like that must have been like a lot of pressure. It was. I uh, I also was a new mom. Uh, so I um, I met I had met my my ex at age 22, and I had actually just given birth to my son a few months before um, I took that role. So, you know, it was nerve wracking for a whole host of reasons. It was uh, a stretch role for me. Uh, I took on functional areas or departments that hadn't reported to me in the past. So HR reported to me, sales reported to me, finance reported to me, our quality team reported to me. I'd, I'd led operations before, but all these other elements. So that was a stretch for me. I was a new mom. And quite frankly, I was the youngest executive that sat at the table. And I was also the only woman. Yeah, that, you must have been the youngest by far. Because I don't, I don't know many... 21 year olds like you know could do that so um yeah um so like how like were you not taken as seriously because of your age or did you feel like that or yeah I was like I was always you, always worried Devin like I'll tell you I um I I, I felt like I was a bit of an imposter, you know, you know, coming in there. I was taken seriously. I will, I will tell you, like I, by, by the majority. I mean, there were many who, who, who questioned for different reasons. But you know, I, 
I had been working for many years. Like, so I actually started working at age 11 in a hair salon, right. To then this shoe store to then I worked for many years in a medical office. So like I had, you know, quite a bit of work experience. And even as a leader at that point, I knew call centers, you know, a big part of my career success. And when I coach people now, as I talk, you know, fundamentally, you need to perform and you need to deliver. So that's the part I did very well. So I wasn't questioned. What I did, though, and it was I learned later I, I, about this is I tried to mask or cover a little bit um, one my age. So first of all, I never wanted to talk about my age. Um, I dressed in a manner that probably aged me a little bit, made me look more business um, and, you know, serious all the time. Uh, and then actually, if I ever kind of got pushed or, in, or cornered a little bit around age, I actually lied about my age when I was young. I, I aged myself. Believe me, I will not do that now. But I, I, told, I told everyone I was like three years older than I actually was, hoping it, you know, gave me more credibility somehow. And then the last thing I would say is I actually... You know, I wanted to be taken seriously. So I was all business all the time, right? So it was a mistake from a leadership perspective. I learned a number of years later, right? The need to be, bring your whole person, like be authentic. You know, Brene Brown talks about vulnerability, but long before, you know, she, she was sort of popular for that. I, like I had learned the lesson because I wasn't. Like I would walk into a meeting and it was straight to, you know, business. So those are the things I did to ensure that no one questioned why I was there and that I deserved to be at the table. And Brene Brown, I stand her, by the way. She's one of my dream guests. So Brene Brown, if you're listening, uh, my email is on the website. No, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, tell us about your background. How, how so? My corporate background, my personal, what what. Is the- like uh, how you grew so up so I'm um so I, I sign a lot of my social media posts when appropriate hashtag unstoppable and hashtag no excuses and that's very much how I define myself as being unstoppable and the philosophy with which I live around you know no excuses my my kids probably hate that but it comes from you know a a place of having to overcome significant um, challenge, uh, diversity, and odds. So I uh, I was born to a drug-addicted teenage mother who beat me pretty severely. And I went in and out of care, uh, you know, for those first many years. And then um, finally, uh, I, was, I was adopted. It was actually by someone who my biological mother, Julie, would often have me stay with after one of these episodes. And my my mom, my mom is the woman that adopted me. Um, Julie is my biological mother. And there's, um, you know, you know, family or those that, you know, not just that you're born into, but that choose you. And my mom chose me. And she turned to Julie after one of these episodes and, um, and said, you know, we just need to to take you away. And interestingly, the episode, um, sadly, the last words I ever really remember Julie uttering was a call to my mom and said, come and get her before I kill her. You know, so from, you know, being pushed up and down stairs and a cigarette in my eye, I wore a patch, um, you know, for, for a while as a child, as, as it recovered, you know, that's where I came from. So for me, you know, I became a bit 
um, hardened. My best friend calls me turtle. I still have a bit of a tough exterior. Like I'm prepared for anything, um, but I'm actually this like incredible marshmallow as well. Super, super emotional. And, you know, that fight or flight at such an early age, you know, has prepared me. And I could have gone, you know, either way. Right. And I chose to fight. Uh, and there's been a multitude of things since then. I think of, you know, as a child, you know, now it's almost, a, it, or sorry, not almost, it is applauded, you know, to, you know, be on the honor roll and be smart and, um, you know, and gifted. Uh, I, you know, despite my, my biological roots, I actually was gifted and, and um, but it was, I was, um, I remember getting a note from all the grade seven girls ostracized for the marks because I was treated special. Um, I hit my, my height um, by the, I was, by the time I was 11, I'm not extremely tall, but I was, I'm five foot eight. Uh, and so they thought I was going to be six feet or, or taller, but you know, you can imagine I was taller than some of my teachers uh, and most of the students. And so, you know, you name it, I was picked on cause I was the, you know, the teacher's pet for being the gifted student um, or, you know, I got special treatment, you know, for my height and, or my looks. Um, I ended up modeling when I was younger, all of these sorts of things. So I just always, there were things against me that I was, um, you know, facing. So I made some poor choices and put myself in some difficult situations, uh, including, um, you know, one of the, the next stages of adversity was being raped by a boyfriend when I was 14. Um, again, putting myself in a situation, I sought love anywhere I could get it, um, you know, and, and, and into some poor situations, you know, so it's been all of these things that have caused me to, um, one, be a fighter, be incredibly strong and resilient. But then I'll say on the other end, Devin, I had a, you know, my mom passed away many years ago, but, and I hated as a child, she'd forced me to spend time understanding my emotions and my actions. And and it's allowed me to, to be really reflective as an adult and understanding. I'm still very quick to feel emotions, um, but sometimes they're not rational, but to understand the place that they come from, right? Am I, I'll always live with a little bit of this fear of rejection. You know, why would my mother do what, she, my biological mother do what she did to me, give me away ultimately. My grandmother chose, you know, my biological family let me go, right? So I've sat with a lot of those things. And that's really made me pretty significantly who I am today. Lots of challenges, obstacles, and adversity to, you know, to face, quite frankly, which is why, you know, this notion of no excuses, right? Like we, we, we all have challenges to bear, some way more significant than others, but it's what we choose to, to do with that right? Controlling what we can control um, and moving forward. Well, I'm sorry to hear all that happened to you, but it sounds like, you know, you grew from it and it made you who you are today. So yeah, absolutely. So some good came out of it. Um, tell us about the stuff you've done to foster diversity and inclusion in the organizations you've worked with. Yeah, it's been a massive passion of mine long, long before it was as talked about as it is today. And I spend a significant amount of my my time from a work perspective talking, given, you know, sort of that the systematic racism we're seeing coming out of the movement related, you know, post, you know, George Floyd's death. For me, it's been a passion because uh, I was the only 
at the table for a long time. And that was, forget my age, I was the only woman. You know, so a lot of it was is around advancement of women. I am privileged. I'm a born white, and I'm born in North America, and so I recognize there's a lot of privilege that comes with that. And so with that, I've you know I need to use my voice. That is my power. And so it's been advancing women and underrepresented, you know, invisible minorities and those with other disabilities within not just the workplace but beyond. So for me, early on, it was advocating for the onlys, right? The folks like myself. So that's been, you know, you know, really targeted coaching, develop, developing and, you know, mentorship, you know, for those uh, from, a, from a diverse um, background or experience set um, has been a, a very large part of it. It has been, um, and, and I should actually add, by the way, I, I came out at age 14 as being bisexual, although for years I vacillated my bisexual and my I, my first marriage was actually to a woman, you know. So being part of the LGBT community, uh, you know, since I was fourteen, um, you know, my two children I gave birth to, but during my marriage to my wife, um, I'm now married to a man. Um, so you know, being part of that community and experiencing, um, you know, the you, you know what that looks like being in, um, you know, within, and by the way, my, 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 my daughter who just turned 16 is also queer. Uh, so, you know, supporting, so that, that element of it, you know, within the workplace, it's been doing a number of things, you know, it has been, so typically it's only the only diverse metric that gets identified within HR systems is gender, right? So I've been easily able to, to tell, you know, at what level within our organizations are, are women entering the organization and advancing within the organization? The, the other, um, you know, whether it's neurodiversity, um, ethnicity, sexuality, all of the other elements, diversity are usually self-identified, which makes it much more challenging. And so, you know, for me, I started with gender and looking at women and things like being declarative that, you know, when roles become available within our organization, we are going to look to our diverse talent. We might have a, a set of, let's say, 10 skills or requisites we're looking for in the role, and that we as leaders need to look to those that have high potential, but might only have seven or eight of the criteria and promote them. And then us as leaders need to invest our time and money, quite frankly, if it's required in the development of the skills or, or the gaps that are missing versus hiring in someone externally um, that might already come in with nine or 10 of those 10. So that's been a really simple one. I, I spent a lot of time, you know, to I, I work for IBM. I lead our talent and transformation business. That's the I'm not an internal practitioner, HR talent practitioner. I work to consult and advise companies about their talent. So, you know, whether that and, and technology and services that ha help enable all of that. So I talk right now a lot about diversity and inclusion or DNI for short, right around, you need to understand the baseline. What, what is your population made up of? What does it look like today? Culturally, like where are you prepared? If it's not, if it doesn't come from the top, it's not gonna be, you know, successful, but what's your baseline? Where do you want to get to? And then you need to be really intentional about how you drive, not just diversity in, um, within, but inclusion, right? We need to feel like 
we are wanted and engaged and our voices are listened to as well as a really critical important element of I like that you said the difference between diversity and inclusion because a lot of people think they're the same but they're not and I think that's like one of the most common misconceptions that we have when it comes to all this so I really like that you differentiated between diversity and inclusion. Thank you yeah very very distinct. Yeah and so lastly um, tell us about some of the articles you've written on LinkedIn and places, because I read a couple of those and they were very, very good. <laughs> Thank you. So. I, um, I've spent a lot of time. I, I learned, first of all, before I talk about the articles, I'll tell you, I mean, I tribute success. And when I, you know, coach people, um, I talk a lot about, um, there's, there's a few kind of broad buckets that, um, you know, or, or will attribute to where I am today. I talked early about you need to deliver, you need to perform, right? The other one, you know, is um, uh, is around creating, you know, boundaries, particularly as you um, get higher in your career and you're juggling things like parenthood or even if it's ill family members or whatever. You, we're all juggling lots of things. So how do you create cr- create boundaries and deliver value personally and professionally? The last one is around personal brand. Uh, and the network that comes, you know, along with that. So I've spent, you know, a long time, you know, curating my brand, you know, that, you know, the, the elevator, that pitch, the, but also what do people say about you when you're not in the room? So, you know, when you asked me at the beginning to describe myself, I'm a corp, you know, I'm a, a corporate executive. I'm a public speaker. I am an author. I participate in boards, I'm you know, diversity and inclusion, um, you know, advocate, you know, networker, all those things. That's my brand. And so um, everything I do on social media, I want it to be reflective of that, of the, the brand and who I am. So the articles I write are elements of all of those, right? So I'll talk about leadership and being bold in our leadership. I, um, there, there's a book called Radical Candor, Kim Scott, who um, used to report to Sheryl Sandberg. Uh, I've embraced that philosophy very much just in how I live my life, right? So I'll, I'll talk about leadership and authenticity and transparency, which in itself breeds trust, not to mention Brene Brown and the vulnerability piece. So I'll talk to elements around that. Going back to the D&I piece, I spend a significant amount of time around how do we do that? We need to be intentional about it, about driving the inclusion side of it. You know, it'll also be around, um, you know, I, I spent some time, although it ties into the, the, the D&I side of it, talking about, you know, racism and um, you know, again, recognizing my, my privilege and in these times, as much as I'm as vocal and I've done as much as I have for DNI, I need to do more listening, right? I don't, yes, I might've been the only woman at the table, but, you know, I was on a panel with a bunch of black women and it was a, this open and raw conversation. So there were a couple of white women, and a couple of black women, and we were brought there to have this open conversation. And we were talking about, you know, having, you know, been told, oh, you're an aggressive woman. And, and actually the woman who said it, aggressive black woman. And I said, it's not unique to that. Like I've, and she goes, no, have you ever been told you're an aggressive black woman? I'm like, well, clearly no, because I'm white. You know, so I taught, I wrote an article around the need for, you know, us to listen and understand other people's lived experience. You know, I might have a very 
diverse set of friends, but it still doesn't mean I have complete understanding of what they've lived in. You know, and then I spend lots of time also writing about, you know, the work I do, you know, around talent. How do we prepare for the future, right? Like roles that are going to, you know, be in existence in three, three to five years from now don't exist, right? As we're all digitally transforming and things change in consumer behavior, right? This COVID time right now, we're seeing that. So that's where I, I tend to spend a lot of time, but it will all tie back, you know, to, you know, that, that I, I said multi-potentialite, the diverse interests I have that tie back to who I am as an individual and, and who I want to portray, but they're all authentically me. And so you'll see a little bit of it, you know, sense of humor that comes out, you know, in, in those, I, I, I learned a long time ago and I needed to drop the all business all the time and just bring me to every situation, you know, slightly different sometimes depending on the audience I'm talking to, but you're always getting Victoria. I'm, I'm, I'm learning that as well. Like, um, my boyfriend is like, you need to stop being so scheduled. I'm like, I know I'm working. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I'm like a procrastinator on one side, but I'm like rigidly scheduled on the other. I don't know how that happened, but, um, so I, I, I just have to say this. Um, I'm very pro cop. I'm very pro police. I think most police officers are doing their jobs, but what do you say to the people who like say that? fixing systems is like anti-police or something like that yeah so i'm um i am not a supporter of abolishing you know our um (laughs) i do i do however believe in you know reform so i think there's a lot more education that needs to be done um most assuredly uh, you know, not l- uh, unlike a, a variety of other workplaces, as we talk about diversity and inclusion and empathy and all of these things for the, the constituents we serve, whether that be, you know, a corporate customer, their employees and their their customers, or whether it be the police force for the community they serve. So I'm, I'm much more so for the reform and education. Yeah, and I, I try not to get political on the podcast but um i will say that i am not for abolishing the police at all like you can't defund an entire group because of one horrifically bad apple and that was horrifically bad but you can't defund an entire group just because it needs to be reformed like reform is definitely the way to go instead of abolishing the whole system so yeah absolutely i'm 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 aligned with you on reform and education so um is there anything else you want to add before we get off here anything else you want people to check out um, well, I mean, people can find me, um, definitely on LinkedIn, as you said, you, you found, you know, my articles there. I do, um, um, write, um, quite a bit, but also find me on my, uh, my personal website, which is, uh, victoria-peltier.com. And I'm Devin, thank you, you know, very much for having me on. I know you, you know, you do this, you talk a lot about diversity and inclusion, which is a big part of the reason why I wanted to be on. So, uh, thank you for having me. Thank you, because fun fact, you are my first press request. So, so you are the first person that 
you know, found me instead of me finding you. So I, I kind of, I kind of uh, considered this episode a milestone. So thank you. I will thank my team for having done some good research and some people who are talking about some things that I'm interested and passionate about as well. So I'm glad they put us together. Yes. Thank your team for, you know, giving me a milestone. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Devin. Thanks to all your listeners. We will see you guys next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to Real Talk All Things Inclusion. Remember to follow us on social media, Instagram at Real Talk Podcast Official, Twitter at Devin Real Talk, and Facebook at Real Talk Podcast Official. If you want to support the show, you can do that by using the link in the show notes. I will see you guys next episode.